Acts chapter 17. I always think that God's grace, His faithfulness is most marvelously displayed in the passages that talk about the depravity of man, uh, the, the sinfulness of their rejection of His grace. But Acts 17, beginning at verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we dig into it, that it would be something we could respond from our hearts with sincerity and worship to you. We pray that you would uh, uh, take the feebleness of my preaching, that you would quicken the word to the hearts of the people, that we would grow in our uh, joy, our love for you, our confidence in your sovereignty. Uh, Father, that this would uh, be a, a, a time in which your word would have its perfect sway in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In my last message, I was looking at the uh, remarkable reasoning of the Apostle Paul that led to a multitude of people believing in verse 4. If I could reason like Paul could, I uh, would just be thrilled. And we looked at his tactics of triage, logical reasoning, constant appeal to the authority of God's Word. Uh, we looked at his... Um, a masterful marshalling of arguments and of facts, uh, his patient willingness to give answers to objections, his ability to keep the conversation focused, uh, his goal of convincing people of the truth, not simply winning an argument and losing a friend, uh, his ability to connect with people, and then his passion in living out what he was preaching. So people wouldn't just be hearing with their ears, they would see uh, the reality of what he was talking about in their lives. He was uh, uh, really a master at reasonable reasoning. And so it may seem uh, rather remarkable and maybe a little bit mysterious that we go to verse 5 and we find people who are not persuaded by this and who end up persecuting Paul and Silas. Uh, did they not hear the same things everybody else heard? Did they not uh, hear clearly presented and reasoned and argued uh, that Jesus was the Christ? We have to say, yes, they did. Verse 3 says that they did. Paul could not have more clearly explained and demonstrated uh, these truths. And one commentator points out that he probably, if you read First and Second Thessalonians, uh, they extrapolate that he probably was doing this over a period of three months. But the first thing that we need to understand when talking to people about the truth is that evidence is not enough. People have depraved hearts. Okay? They are resistant to the truth. And even believers will resist the truth if they are not clinging to God's Word. Verse 5 says, But the Jews who were not persuaded. They had ample time. They had ample information that was being given over that three-month period. 
they had plenty of time for Paul to be able to answer any of the objections and the doubts that they had. And so we're saying here, evidence is not enough. These people didn't want to be convinced. Romans 1 says, the natural state of man's heart is to resist the truth. Let me read verse 18 of that chapter. (coughs) For the wrath of God (coughs) is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, now get this phrase, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's their natural state. Because of their pre-commitments, they get a little bit anxious. They squirm when certain portions of the Word come to bear in their lives, and it says they suppress that truth they don't want to believe. First Thessalonians says that these persecutors do not please God... That's in the context of doctrine, 1 Thessalonians 2.15. In other words, their goal when they're studying doctrine is not God-centered, it's man-centered. They want to believe a doctrine that will make them feel comfortable. His second letter to this church says that as a result, these persecutors were set up for demonic delusion, quote, because they did not receive the love of the truth because they did not receive the love of the truth. That's what God's grace gives to us. It gives to us a love for the truth. Those who love God's truth want to hear what the truth of God's Word says, even if it's going to be inconvenient and it's going to be uncomfortable. Well, these people didn't have that. And so 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12 says, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Scary stuff. Now that last verse I read also demonstrates that uh, people are usually not as objective as they would like you to believe that they are. It was their desire to hold on to sin that made them susceptible to confusion. Let me read you a verse from John 7. John 7, verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak in my own authority. He says, your internal desires can affect the way in which you reason. He says, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. People have a predisposition away from truth until they are touched by God's grace. And so verse 5 of Acts 17 goes on to say, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious. Now, it's just one motivation as to why they did not believe. And you read in 1 Thessalonians and you'll see some other motivations that kept them resisting the truth. And I think it's worthwhile studying some of those motivations because when you're interacting with others or even studying and examining your own heart, it's helpful to look. But I'm just going to look at this one motivation, envy. And I think it's an interesting one. Envy implies desire, and specifically, you're desiring something that you don't have and that does not belong to you. So what is it that they were wishing, that they wished that they had? They didn't want grace. They didn't want the gospel. They didn't want to be members of his church. They didn't want to be followers of Paul. What was it that they were envious of? Well, Matthew 23, verse 15 gives us a hint. Jesus said, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. These um, Jewish Pharisees 
or very aggressive in trying to win converts from among uh, the Gentiles. And they'd been working very, very hard at getting these Gentiles to start attending their synagogue. And then this upstart, Paul, comes along. And in three months, he's got more Gentiles uh, on his, you know, to coming to Christ than these Jews have been able to accomplish in years. His success was what made them jealous. They were also losing some of their own converts. I'm sure that didn't help at all. But Paul and Silas were in direct competition with them, and they took that personally. First Thessalonians tells us that these Jews forbade Paul from preaching to the Gentiles. It, just, it really upset them that he was having an influence among these Gentiles that they were not able to have. And so their goal in this debate was not to come to the truth. Their goal was to poison people's minds against the competition. Now, sure, they were arguing, but they were arguing in order to defend and uphold their desires. And we Christians need to be very careful that we are not blinded in our exegesis because of our own desires. Now, people sometimes want the Scriptures to say such and such because it would be very inconvenient if it didn't say such and such. And any time they think about the opposite doctrine, they could just feel the resistance rising up uh, within them. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at the wonderful reaction of the Bereans uh, who were more honorable. But this week, I'm just wanting to look at the psychology. What goes into the res resisting of the truth? Secondly, envy implies pre-commitments. They were committed to something before the debate had even begun. And we speak of these pre-commitments as presuppositions. Everybody has them. In fact, you could not reason without uh, presuppositions. But the question is, some people, by God's grace, are willing to have their presuppositions challenged and changed by the Word of God. Others are not. So it's not an issue of whether you can or you can't have presuppositions. Everybody has them. But some are unwilling to allow their presuppositions uh, to be challenged. And I think it's important to understand this because some people get so frustrated with others. Why can't they see it? The facts are so clear. Well, they're clear to you because of your worldview. Um, our worldview, to a large degree, determines what facts we consider relevant, what facts we are willing to accept or reject uh, without uh, even uh, giving them a hearing. And there's so many millions of facts out there. In order to even process, you're going to have to do this. But James Sire defines a worldview this way. A set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or unconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. So why was the truth being rejected? Well, in part, it was because they were desperately holding on to comfortable presuppositions. Uh, when you're entering into a debate, you've got to address those presuppositions. It doesn't do any good just to be throwing a bunch of facts. You've got to address the assumptions by which they're interpreting those facts. The third thing implied by envy is that they were not being objective. It was not that the facts being presented by Paul were unreasonable. All the evidence was pointing to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. But the thing that upset them was the fact that these these facts were flying in the face of what they wanted. It kept them from being objective. And then ultimately, this envy made them prejudiced against Paul and Silas. And prejudice makes people's minds closed off the truth. Later in verse 11, Paul says about the next city, Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness 
and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So that's the opposite of what we're looking at today. That's fair-mindedness. That's a willingness to have our own presuppositions challenged and changed by the Word of God. And Scripture says, if you're closed-minded like the Thessalonians were, it's very foolish. Proverbs 12, verse 1, He who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 13, 18, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. And so even though some of the reactions of these Thessalonians was kind of bizarre, I think it's helpful in analyzing what goes on out there in the world, as well as our own rejection of the truth. Point C shows how these people resorted to unfair tactics when they could not win the debate openly and fairly. It shows the depraved extent of their prejudice. Verse 5, it says, Becoming envious, they took evil men from the marketplace. That's rather interesting because these guys pride themselves in being so upright. You know, these are Pharisees. These are the guys that really want to be considered to be holy. There is no way you would get those Jews to agree with those evil Gentile men from the marketplace ordinarily. Those would have been on opposite sides of the fence on so many different issues. But now that they have a common enemy, Paul and Silas, and ultimately Jesus Christ, they're able to get together. And you find this throughout the Scripture. In the Gospel of John, it says Paul, I mean, not Paul, uh, it says that uh, Herod and Pilate were enemies. But when they were in opposition to Jesus. They were able to work. In fact, it says they became friends as a result of this uh, mistreatment of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were bitter enemies. And you, you find in the Gospels, they were able to work together uh, in, in trying in common to embarrass Jesus. And so don't be surprised at the strange bedfellows that get together um, when they're in opposition uh, to you and to your testimony. They then organized a mob. People don't want to be alone in their error. They usually want others who will help them, you know, to undermine the truth. And so they talk about it and they get others upset about the truth. And we've talked in the past about this uh, mob uh, principle, mob psychology. I won't go into depth on that. But uh, a mob can be very easily manipulated by skillful people. Any group can be poisoned to the truth by enough talk and slanted information. He goes on gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar. What they were trying to do is inflame the, the emotions of these citizens. Oh, what these guys are doing is terrible. You know, we've got to do something about this. They're destroying the fabric of our society. And we've got to be very careful and watch out about this because if you can get people mad enough, they will not be able to reason logically. And you've probably seen this a hundred times, you know, when people get irate, uh, suddenly, their ability to objectively reason is completely thrown out the window. Emotions poison the brain's ability to think objectively. And this is one of the things we've got to drill into our children's uh, consciousness. If you do not gain control over your emotions, you will never mature. Guaranteed, you will never mature if you do not gain control over your emotions. Uh, emotions keep us from being objective. And it's... it's it's, uh, you know, if you're trying to debate with another person and you see they're getting angry, they're getting upset, it's the best thing to just leave that debate aside because you're not going to get anywhere with them. It's not going to accomplish a thing. 
And if you find yourself getting angry and bitter and upset in, in, in some way, one of the things that's helped me uh, is to try to look at this problem. Why are those people doing this? Looking at it from the other person's perspective, it may uh, help you to address the presuppositions that are driving them, or it may help you to say, you know, they do have a point. I can see why they're upset with what I'm doing. But I, it's helped me a number of times to not be overcome by evil. I remember one time in particular, there was a person who made uh, a, you know, publicly slandered me and uh, threatened to turn me into social services and have my kids taken away, and it was totally groundless. There was just no basis for this. And you can bet I was pretty mad. <laughs> you can attack me a lot and, and get away with it. You can bring up corrections to my family. But when my wife or my kids are unjustly accused in that way, they're threatened, I get pretty warm. So I sent off a steaming letter. Well, I didn't send it off. I wrote a steaming letter to put this person in his place and all of the things that they were doing that was wrong. And as was my habit, I've always had a habit. I wait for a day or two almost always, I wait for a day or two <laughs> before I send this letter. There, the, the times I have not, I've regretted it. But I wait for a day or two, and during that time, as my emotions cooled down, I recognized, okay, even though I am 100% in the right, that person is 100% in the wrong. I couldn't even see any justification whatsoever for what they were doing, even though everything that I said in my letter was exactly right it was not going to accomplish what I was hoping for it to accomplish. And I realized a soft answer is going to accomplish so much more. Now, the reason I bring that up is even when you are right, your emotions can poison your brain from doing the right thing. We've got to be, we've got to be careful on this. So before you send the hit the send button on your emails, if you've written that email in an inflamed state, maybe sit on it for a day or two, pray about it, read it you know, two or three times and see if you really ought to send that. Anyway, enough said on that. They then resorted to the common tactic of using force. And the last part there, verse 5, And gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. This is what anger does. Goes on the attack against a person, usually. Now, there is a place for justified anger, but anger needs to be directed against the problem. And when we parents discipline our children in a rage, in a fury, what usually happens is we are attacking the person instead of attacking the problem that needs to be addressed. And uh, how many times, just as an example, do people who get into arguments and they're trying to convince each other of this end up in fisticuffs with each other? You see, knocking a person down is not going to convince them of the truth. It doesn't. All it does is intimidate them. Okay? In verse 6, they try to use the law. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And we'll see that the magistrates were a little bit more restrained in Thessalonica than they were in Philippi, and there was a reason for that. But the Jews were trying to get the government to use its force to oppose Paul and Silas. And the specific point of law, which was actually unconstitutional law we saw before, <clears throat> was that uh, the, uh, Caesar had, uh, the year before, given this decree that all Jews had to be kicked out of, out of Rome. Now, if you uh, read behind the scenes, 
and see what that uh, decree was about. It was a, a riot in Rome over a man named Crestus. And a lot of people have assumed that this was uh, Christ, uh, Jesus. And so it's ironic that they're bringing up this law because the Jews had been kicked out of Rome for doing exactly what they're doing right here, creating a riot over Christ. And yet, you know, uh, when you get emotional like that, <coughs> you don't think rationally. <coughs> and so they say, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Anytime you hear people say, there ought to be a law, question it. <laughs> you hear this all of the time. It is not in the best interest of society to constantly be appealing to force. That should be a last resort kind of an issue, and yet this is the first line of recourse for many evangelicals. You know, they don't like smoking in public places. There ought to be a law against public smoking. You know, there ought to be a law to control uh, the Internet. And you need to be very careful about what you're wishing because you may be ending up gaining more and more tyranny. Even if it is something that's a sin, there's a difference between a crime and a sin according to the Scripture. Evangelicals want cigarettes taxed because they say, yeah, we've got to tax these punitively. That's a bad habit. We need to get people over this. But you know, if there are not equal taxes across the board, what, what could happen down the road? They have punitively taxed Bibles or something else. And so we've got to be careful in our argumentation not to use pragmatism, but to use the Scripture in, uh, 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 in advancing the cause of Christ. Anyway, these rabble-rousers know exactly what they're doing. And in verse 8, it says, "...and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things." This bringing up of insurrection troubled the magistrates because any news that might reach Caesar's ears that there is opposition to Caesar is going to be taken very, very seriously. They could be in trouble. And it seems that they're not taking this charge very seriously because they don't do a whole lot uh, with it. But they've got to... Now, they've probably heard from Philippi. You don't beat <laughs> Paul and Silas because they're Roman citizens. Uh, so they're not taking it too hard, but uh, they still have to do something to show that they are... Uh, they're, they're taking this charge seriously. Now, we may get disgusted at rulers, and frequently I do <laughs> get disgusted at rulers and the evil things that they are doing. But, you know, frequently what is happening is these rulers are themselves being used by special interest groups who know exactly how to yank their chain. Sad, but it's true. Rulers get anxious. They're very easily manipulated. Now, they troubled the crowd too, it says here, in effect, they were insisting that if the people don't go along with what they're saying, they're not loyal to Caesar. I'm going to tell dad on you. May or may not work, depending on if the dad really is a reasonable man who's always investigating the evidence. But the, the implied charge, I'm going to tell Caesar on you, if you don't do what we're going to do, did put fear into the hearts of the citizens as well as into the hearts of the magistrates. We saw in Philippi, if Caesar... Once, he can just remove a lot of the, the, the um, privileges of the city. And so even the citizens were troubled by this charge. And so politics ensures injustice. And verse 9 says, So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now you would think there wouldn't be such a big row over simply preaching about Jesus. 
And yet when you realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil are all ganging up against you, you ought not to be surprised by anything. I have seen such irrational opposition to the truth down through the years that I've learned to expect just about anything. This security that was required of Jason and the rest was likely a large sum of money that they all had to pool together in order to be able to pay it. And it would be forfeited if Paul and Silas caused any more trouble. And I think this is probably what forced Paul and Silas to just leave. They hadn't been caught, but to leave the city, they just decided it would impoverish this whole church if we stick around. And so they felt forced to leave. And I think this is what is being referred to in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 18. It says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And so Paul characterizes this... this um, this huge tension that's going on in Thessalonica as being satanically inspired. It was warring with uh, not flesh and blood, but with uh, evil principalities. And if you read through the rest of First and Second Thessalonians, you'll see they continued to receive a lot of persecution. Now, in those two books, Paul also says that the Jews crossed the line committing the unpardonable sin and were... Uh, were doomed to damnation. John Piper defines the unpardonable sin this way. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that He withdraws forever with His convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. Now, when does a person step over that line? I don't think anybody knows. And that's what makes it a, a scary thing. Very discouraging to face. I'm sure there was a lot of discouragement for Paul in Thessalonica. But that's not where we're going to end the sermon this morning. Uh, I want to end with an affirmation that even this discouraging resistance was totally controlled by God. You see, everybody would resist the gospel. Everybody would resist the truth because of their depravity if God's grace did not change them. We, we speak of this as the doctrine of total depravity. Men are not neutral. They are not objective. They are hell-bent, according to the Bible. The only difference between the glad reception of the truth in verse 4 and the hatred of the truth in verse 5 was God's grace, His sovereign grace, His powerful grace, His loving grace which rescued people from themselves. But God is just as sovereign in His reprobation of those who hate the truth as well. Paul wrote to these believers... In Second uh, Thessalonians 2, saying this, For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It says God's the one who sent them that delusion. Now, it's so easy to think, oh, things are so out of control when these people are resisting the truth, and yet the Scripture indicates God had that as a part of His plan as well. As Jude says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. And we speak of that as double predestination. And some people say, that's so unfair. How could they do that? But when you think about it, every one of us deserved to be marked out to that damnation. No one to be saved. 
We can't say God's unfair to mark out these people for damnation and these people for salvation. All of us deserved uh, to be uh, cast aside. And so it's not a sign that things are out of control. It's a sign that they do not have God's grace. Third encouraging thing is that God controlled the details of Paul's life. In the previous chapter, God guaranteed that Paul and Silas would be thrown into jail because he had a jailer who was an elect person that had to be saved, and God has the right to do that with our lives. He is sovereign. But in this chapter, Paul escapes their attention even though everybody is out there looking for him. Verse 6 says, When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. So Paul and Silas must have stepped out for a coffee at Starbucks or something. Uh, you know, they left at just the right time uh, from the house that they were used to staying in. God orders our steps so that there are no accidents, and we can rejoice in that. A fourth thing to rejoice in is the complaint of the mob leaders in verse 6. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful accusation if they brought that accusation against the church of Omaha. I'm afraid it's an accusation that would not stick because most of the churches in Omaha are not turning anything upside down. They're satisfied with the status quo. Uh, thank you. But wouldn't it be great if others could say of us, these are people who have turned the world upside down. Now, if the world thinks it's upside down, it really means that Paul and Silas have been turning the world right side up, right? Uh, when Adam and Eve, when Adam fell into sin, he made a mess of every aspect of this world's physical, social, emotional, spiritual, and relational life. It was really Adam that turned the world upside down, and God's grace is reversing that. The Gospel hymn, Joy to the World, has it right when verse 3 says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. That's how pervasive the Gospel should be. There should be not one nook or cranny of life that is not turned right side up by King Jesus. So, was politics upside down? Yes, it was. And God saved Paulus, Sergius Paulus, I guess was his name, a magistrate. Uh, was uh, business practices upside down in the Roman Empire? Yes, it was. And God used Paul to lead many businessmen and a businesswoman to Christ. Was the jail system a mess? Absolutely, it was a mess. But God strategically put a Christian jailer in place so that he could have an influence in there for the cause of Christ. And when you look at the previous chapters that we have been going through, you will see that God has placed slaves and businessmen, poor and rich, magistrates and citizens, He strategically placed them various places in the world to have an influence for King Jesus. There were peasants and aristocrats, a jailer and some prisoners, a doctor and two cripples, Jews, Gentiles, prominent men and women, Pharisees, priests, Levites had all been converted. There were common laborers and rabbis, people who were unlettered, people who were in the schools. There were soldiers and centurions. And even though Paul had not converted really that many, when you compare it to the, 
the, the, all of the people who were still unsaved, every one of those people who had been saved was having his or her own influence and was causing the gospel to reach into every aspect of society. Now, while there is no way that our ministry could compare to the Apostle Paul's, each one of you represents a cross-section, quite a cross-section, of Nebraska and Iowa. Scott works in the city gates. Uh, Brad works in the jail gates. <laughs> uh, Steve works with many politicians, and his ministry has opened the door for me to preach to three presidential candidates and their staff and hundreds of rank-and-file citizens. This church has common laborers, tradesmen, businessmen, a doctor, a writer, academics. I mean, when you look at all of the people in this church, you guys have an enormous influence out there in society, have an enormous influence. And it's people like you who are turning the world right side up. Now, if you want to see what kind of threat you are to society, go to the movie theater and watch the movie, if it's still in there this next week, called Expelled. I tell you, the, the people who are in power really feel that we are a threat. Not even we. It's just even the compromised Christians are a threat. And uh, read that. I think you'll be encouraged. Hallelujah. We are a threat to the humanists. As you sent me out with biblical blueprints, you've been able to extend the reach of this congregation to other countries, to Christians who are lawyers, a mayor, high-ranking federal officer, businessmen, common laborers, jailbirds, teachers, students, and among unbelievers, our teams have had the privilege of preaching the gospel to Hindu radicals, Maoist guerrillas, a former prince of Afghanistan who's running for office right now. And we, we had him as a captive audience. He was in the airplane for 12 hours with us, <laughs> surrounded, you know, by the radicals on this team. And um, we've had opportunity to talk to businessmen and students and extensive teaching I was able to give to this one Hindu legislator who at the end of that time was saying he was considering leaving Hinduism. You see, you never know where God might place us. And it's not really us who's turning the world upside down. It wasn't Paul who turned the world upside down. It was God who made these opportunities come up. We could not have orchestrated these things if we wanted, and Paul couldn't have orchestrated that. And so we can have an absolute confidence that God is in all of these things in advancing the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same God who did it back then can continue to turn the world upside down today. Amen? Amen. Now, it would have been very, very easy for Paul to get discouraged if he had focused on the resistance that he was receiving in Thessalonica. It would have been so easy to get discouraged. But if he remembered what God had been doing and all of the strategic people that had been put into place, he could be encouraged. And I think we've got a lot to be encouraged about. So there really was something to be envious of in verse 5. And I believe the only thing that makes any sense for these people to be envious about Paul on was his success in reaching and changing people. You read through 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, and you'll see Paul waxing eloquent on the profound changes that were happening in the lives of these believers who had left idols to serve the living God. Uh, there were people who had switched sides, as it were, switched kingdoms, where before they had resisted God's grace, now they are bold advocates for God's grace. Where they were aliens to His grace, they now tasted of its power. As Paul told these Thessalonians, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. That's the kind of transformation that ought to encourage our hearts when we see people, individuals all over the place being changed. Now, Paul was grieved over some Christians, Christians who had Christianity as a profession, but he saw no change in their lives. He didn't see the joy, the peace, the power that God's Spirit produces there. And I love the book of 1 Thessalonians because it draws such a stark contrast between those who resist the truth and those who used to resist the truth but now have been captured by the love of God. Paul Stanley was an infantry uh, company commander in Vietnam in 1967 and he relates this story. I saw Viet Cong soldiers surrender many times. As they were placed in custody, marched away and briefly interrogated, their body, language, and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their heads in shame, staring at the ground, unwilling to look their captors in the eye. But some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them, resisting any attempt by our men to control them. They had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the enemy had withdrawn, I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viet Cong. Shot through the lower leg, he was hostile and frightened, yet helpless. He threw mud and kicked with his one good leg when anyone came near him. When I joined the circle around the wounded enemy, one soldier asked me, Sir, what do we do? He's losing blood fast and needs medical attention. I looked down at the struggling Viet Cong and saw the face of a 16 or 17-year-old boy. I unbuckled my pistol belt and hand grenades so he could not grab them. Then, speaking gently, I moved toward him. He steered, stared fearfully at me as I knelt down, but he allowed me to slide my arms under him and pick him up. As I walked with him toward a waiting helicopter, he began to cry and hold me tight. He kept looking at me and squeezing me tighter. We climbed into the helicopter and took off. During the ride, our young captive sat on the floor, clinging to my leg. Never having ridden in a helicopter, he looked out with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. He fixed his eyes back on me, and I smiled reassuringly and put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up and walked toward the medical tent. As we crossed the field, I felt the tenseness leave his body and his tight grasp loosen. His eyes softened, and his head leaned against my chest. The fear and resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered." And when I read that, I thought, that is a perfect picture of us. Because we were once the enemy. We were resistant. We were defiant. We were utterly unable to be reasoned with. We were resistant to the truth, but God's grace broke in and we surrendered. My question is, have you surrendered to the truth of God or do you still find yourself resisting that truth, suppressing that truth because it is uncomfortable? Now, there's more to rejoice in. It's not just individual salvation that Jesus brings, but the eventual capture of nations. We are in a battle for nations, and until emperors and kings submit to King Jesus, the battle is not over. And even though these rabble-rousers try to put the worst spin that they can upon this, they really are right. We do have another king, Jesus, and he is Lord of lords, he is King of kings, and you know what? Just as Caesar found him a threat back then, our own Caesar and Caesars around this uh, world 
continue to find him a threat because of his absolute sovereignty and his law, which is above all other laws. You know, one thing that they're absolutely right about in verse 7 is that God's law trumps man's law. These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, here's my question. Would the world even remotely be able to bring a credible accusation like that against us? Or is our worldview so wimpy, so mushy, that we are absolutely no threat to the ACLU? That's the question we need to think about. Are we a threat? If we're not a threat, there's something wrong with our worldview. Now, I'm not going to dwell much on the last two points because they're not mentioned in the chapter of Acts, but I just wanted to fill out when you read... 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3, which describes Paul's work during this time in this town, you will see that God instills a, a powerful love for the truth in these brethren. He sends Timothy to minister to them. And those books indicate that the church continued to prosper in God's grace. Now, yes, they had problems and he had to address those problems, but God's grace was sufficient to address those problems. And so next time you're discouraged because you've been bringing the truth and you get resistance to the truth, whether it's in your family, in the church, outside the church, doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. It's not your responsibility to change people's hearts. That's where you get frustrated. That's where people begin to be, uh, you know, get even violent. You cannot change people's hearts. Your responsibility is to do the best you can at reasonably reasoning with others. That was the passage we looked at last, uh, last time, verses 1 through 4. And then to trust that God can bring His powerful grace to bring that truth, however, whenever, wherever, it is His will to do that. Trust Him in that. The last admonition that I want to give you this morning is to make sure you do not give in to your own flesh's desire to resist the truth. Be like the Bereans, men, women, and children who received a love of the truth no matter how inconvenient. Charles Spurgeon once said, it is my first public declaration that a thing which looks to be unreasonable and seems to be unprofitable being commanded by God is law and is law to me. If my master had told me to pick up six stones and lay them in a row, I would do it without demanding of him what good will it do? Cui bono is no fit question for soldiers of Jesus. The very simplicity and apparent uselessness of the ordinance should make the believer say, therefore I do it because it becomes the better test to me of my obedience to my Master. I love that quote. I, I just love it. I, it shows Spurgeon had a love for the truth that was instilled there by God's grace. That should be our attitude. If God says to me, I want you to take six stones and I want you to lay them in a, in, in, an or, in a row, I shouldn't question why. I should just gladly say, yes, Lord. It is my delight to do Your will. May we model to the world that we have put off all resistance of the truth and we have embraced God's will by faith. May we receive what First Thessalonians speaks of as the love of the truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You so much for Your grace which has broken down the resistance of our heart. Father, knowing my own heart, I know how easy it is for us to resist Your truth. And we cling to Your grace. And we pray, Father, having begun a good work in us, 
Would you please complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Mature us, Father. Make us to be as holy as it is possible for sinners to become. And I pray that you would do a powerful work within this congregation and through this congregation that there would be such rivers of living water flowing out of their innermost beings that the pagans all around us would say, what are these people doing? They're turning this world upside down. Father, may we be a threat to Satan's kingdom. I pray that you would bless this, your people, with the courage that they need, with the faith they need, the information that they need. Fill them, Father, full to overflowing. And may we be a blessing to the world, even though the world may consider it to be a curse because they are threatened. May it be a blessing to the world. May we love our enemies. May we love those who hate us. May we, Father, be bringing the principles of your word in such a way that you are glorified. And that is ultimately our desire and our longing. Do bless this people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.